0: The only purpose of the Talking Space podcast is to educate and to inform. The views expressed in this program are the opinions, experiences, and conclusions of the guests. They do not represent the official policy or position of the Space Tweep Society as a whole, NASA, any other space agency, company, contractor, or affiliate.
1: All of you on the good earth. One small step for man, one giant leap.
2: Buddy to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Podcast episode 303 for the week of January 16th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Jean Mikulka. Welcome, Gene. We've got a lot to dig into and talk about, Sawyer. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right, thanks. And with us as well is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark.
3: Hello, Sawyer.
2: Always good to hear both of you guys. All right, so as Gene was saying, we've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's dig right into it. And our first event is STS133. And uh, there are a couple of stories that we need to go over with STS-133. First, we know a little bit about a little more about the stringers and launch dates, right, Gene? Yeah, uh, there was a press
4: conference on uh, January 11th. And uh, uh, they were saying that, uh, again, they've psyched out the problem on, uh, on tank number 137. Uh, I, I will go ahead, and you know what I think I'll do there, Sawyer? Um, I'll have uh, John Shannon describe what the root cause of that thing was. So uh, if you could just go ahead and uh, pull that up for me, please.
2: Not a problem.
0: We absolutely have root cause, um, and we have, uh, we have been able to show that through tests. And it's a combination of two factors. It's the low fracture toughness of the material. You have about a 65% of the expected fracture toughness uh, combined with some assembly stresses that were built up in, uh, in different areas. We know that because uh, when we loaded the tank, we put uh, high stress on all of those uh, stringers that had that low fracture toughness, and we only had cracks in five of what we believe were 78 stringers, uh, in looking at those stringers that had cracked, we're seeing the evidence of those assembly stresses that combined with that low fracture toughness to cause the problem. So we have root cause and we have a fix that we're we're completely confident will uh, will eliminate that uh, those root causes.
4: Shannon also uh, went ahead and congratulated everybody along the lines too, because a lot of hard work was made um, or or done in relationship to the problem. And uh, they, they really, really worked uh, exceptionally hard at uh, dealing with this. So, uh, and it was over the holidays as well. So, a, a lot of lost time and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of lost time with family as a result of all this. But uh, they've licked the problem, and it looks like they're going to go ahead and um, uh, use something called uh, radius blocks to go ahead and try to correct this this little issue. And to uh, describe what what they're going to do a little bit, uh, I'll I'll go ahead and allow John Shannon to uh, to uh, uh,
0: enlighten us. And then the radius block is a small piece of 2024 20, aluminum. It's about six inches long, it's about a fifth of an inch thick, and it's it's curved. That's why they call it radius. It's curved to kind of go up the uh, the side of the stringer. And it's fastened down right on top of the feet of the stringer over that cord in that shim area. And all it does is it keeps the uh, the feet of that stringer nice and flat, so you don't get bending as you, uh, as you start to bend down the stringer itself. You're not starting to bend up around those fasteners, which causes the localized stress. It keeps it nice and flat, puts all the bending stress up into the top of the stringer, which has much greater capability than the feet do. Um, so by just putting this very small uh, piece of aluminum over the top of that cord and keeping those feet nice and flat in that area that bends down, uh, you increase the capability of that area by about three and a half to four times. Um, so it's a, it's a very simple, uh, elegant fix to uh, to the problem. So
4: what the devil are these things? Um, John Shannon just went ahead and described what, what these are. Um, they are just essentially the small pieces of aluminum uh, they are about maybe six inches long and I think he mentioned about five and a quarter inches uh, correction of uh, less than uh, uh, one-fifth of an inch thick um, he uh, gave a rather detailed explanation of, of what these things are and, and the, the origin of these things they are distributed in other places on uh, on the tank but, uh, uh, well, again, I'll, I'll let uh, Mr. Shannon explain what's going on here.
0: The, uh, the radius blocks are used in, uh, in standard applications on the inner tank, wherever you need some additional strength in the stringers, like wherever you have, um, there's some cabling, there's some, some uh, support structure that ties into areas behind some of these, uh, these stringers, and it's been uh, standard practice in the design in those areas where you needed that additional strength to put, a radius block in there. Um, you know, radius block is kind of fancy They call it radius because it it it, it mimics the radius of the uh, the little fillet area going from the feet up into the sidewall of the uh, of the stringer. So it's a curved little piece of of metal on the sides. Um, and it, but it's really just a little thin doubler that you put on there to keep those feet nice and flat.
4: So you can see these things are sort of distributed all through the tank, and they just went ahead and, and used this to go ahead and, and fix the problem that they were having. Now, uh, as far as the impact to the other tanks, it looks like uh, they fully suspect that tank number 138, which I believe has been assigned uh, right now for the launch on NEED flight, uh, which is uh, Atlantis. uh, That that tank looks like it may also be affected, and they are going ahead to take a look at that. In fact, they rehired about 22 people that they initially laid off. To come back and help uh, to analyze Tank One One Thirty Eight to see if uh, if that problem exists there and to uh, to uh, uh, fix that problem. They don't suspect that uh, Tank Number One Twenty Two. That was the tank you saw there, Mark. uh, The one that uh, was the uh, the Katrina tank. Right. Um, Yeah. They don't suspect the problem being there, but they're going to go ahead and take a look at it anyway. Uh, they're going to go ahead, take that apart, take a look at the the uh, stringers there, and try to go ahead and uh, uh, see if that problem actually exists there. But they they're not uh, they they they're just they don't want to discount it. But uh, they said that the probability of of the same issue is uh, um, you know highly unlikely on that particular tank. Uh, the neat the other neat thing that came out of this press conference was that uh, Bill Gerstenmeyer actually said that. Uh, They're they're looking at um, STS-135 now as an actual flight. They're not, you know, right now it's it's considered to be the launch on need flight for STS-133. But uh, I'll let Bill Gerstenmaier go ahead and explain um, what uh, what the rationale is on uh, STS-135. So Sawyer, if you can run that for me, please.
1: Sure. In terms of STS-135, we're going to change the focus a little bit. You know, we've been calling it STS-335, uh, a contingency launch on need flight. We're going to start calling it now 135, and John will do that either this week or next week in the PRCB. And, and that doesn't mean a whole lot to folks on the outside, but it, what it means to us is we're kind of mentally shifting gears to where we're going to start thinking about uh, STS-135 as a real flight. Get our head back in the game, make sure that there's nothing we're missing from a manifesting standpoint, and we'll figure out the. THE RIGHT TIME THROUGH THAT EFFORT OF WHEN WE WANT TO GO FLY THAT FLIGHT. You know, as the manifest is laid out right now, it supports the June 28th date. We know technically Mike would like to move some things. we got to go look at the overall budget, look at workforce, look at staffing, and figure out the right location to put that flight. But what you'll see us start talking about that flight as being more and more real. We're going to make sure we've got the tank ready. We make sure we got the workforce to support all the way through the end of June. We'll make sure we got the right training, the right plans in place. So you'll start seeing a shift to that from where we're treating it kind of as a contingency flight to actually we're going to start mentally thinking about it more as a real flight so you'll see that over the the next couple weeks as we start moving through the program boards
4: okay so sorry you had some uh you had some some other comments with reference to the tank correct
2: yeah just going back a little bit you're talking about uh you and john chen were talking about the uh how the aluminum is you know partially the problem i'm just thinking to myself it's amazing how the one thing that's preventing this amazing space vehicle from flying is space age technology i just found that coincidental (laughs)
4: <laughs> that is that is kind of interesting, but uh, it, it's it's even so much the aluminum preventing it from flying. It's sort of the, these as as I kind of sort of explained on, on I think it was the last show what what we're talking about here. If you've ever taken a look at uh, you know those little cardboard uh, uh, cardboard ringers you see around coffee cups and you see that's kind of you know corrugated. That's what we're talking about. There's stuff inside you know the, these little pieces of uh, metal that that's sort of uh, you know, ring formed and it, su- and it supports the tank. And, you know, these things are apparently popping off. And, and these little uh, uh, radius blocks are supposed to be inserted again right at, at, the, uh, at the feet of one of these stringers. And it's supposedly going to go ahead and, and hold it together and uh, make sure that it's, it's strong and true. And uh, they've gone ahead and they did extensive testing over, over the Christmas and New Year's holidays. Um, also using uh, the remnants of, of uh, Tank 139, which was never really completed, to go ahead and run the tests. They ran these tests over at machu to verify, you know, that their thinking was was along this, those lines. And said, yeah, the you know all their testing pointed, yep, yep, this is this is it. This is going to be the fix, and it's going to work. So uh, you know, hats off to them. It was a great uh, piece of detective work all the way around, and uh, uh, they really. You know the, the the miracle workers over at uh, over at KSC and and
3: uh, everybody else involved really really put a lot of time on this. So congratulations to all everybody all the way around. From our details department, I think it's interesting that given the scale of the external tank and the uh, the the size of these stringers, which are 21 feet long, that the radius blocks only being a few inches. Still, it's hard for me to put this all together. But it says that it only adds about five pounds of weight to the tank.
4: Yeah, that that also was kind of interesting. I think uh, um, during the uh, the press conference, I think it was uh, Jim Oberg that asked that question, uh, how much weight it it added to it. And uh, John Shannon said, it, you know, it was going to be minimal. I think he he kind of theorized it was going to be like five or six pounds, but. Uh, um, Again, Mark, great point. Um, it's it will not have a huge impact on on the cargo because I think there was a question during the press conference too on would there be any cargo changes on STS-133, and uh, uh, Mike Suffredini, who was there, uh, uh, indicated probably not. Um, there was no need to go ahead and change it or. Uh, or, uh, you know, add anything to the cargo manifest. So if if there are going to be any changes, he said they're going to be extraordinarily minor. The STS-133 is scheduled to fly uh, around February 24th, but there's another wrinkle that happened just this weekend that might impact STS-133.
2: Unfortunately, Gene, you're 100% correct. Over this weekend, it appears that Lead spacewalker for the STS-133 mission and astronaut Tim Copra was riding his bicycle and unfortunately had a bicycle accident. At this point, the only news that has officially been released by NASA is that the injuries were not life-threatening. However, there are reports indicating that it has something to do with his hip. We do not know what impact this might have, if any, on the STS-133 mission and its February 24th launch date. There's always the possibility that it may be pushed back because they've been training for two years now. And how many other people can be a lead spacewalker after just a few weeks? Because it it takes months upon years to train and especially going over it all in the pool at the Johnson Space Center, the neutral buoyancy lab. I don't know what they're gonna be able to do.
4: Yeah, again, right now, sir, they don't have backups anymore because of, you know, because of the nature of the program right now. So it's really, really unknown, you know, uh, the extent of the injury. And uh, I'm hoping that, you know, a few people are reporting that uh, he broke his hip. A few people are reporting it's a bruise. A few people are reporting it's it's nothing at all. So, you know, I'm sure that the situation will crystallize as we go forward and uh but uh you know i'm, I'm hoping that uh, the, the, this is not a setback i know that, you know a major setback and i'm just hoping that uh you know that uh, uh tim's okay and uh, uh is able to go ahead and 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 do his duties as uh, ev1 on sts 133 so i'm keeping my fingers crossed
3: i bet at this point that if there was somebody that could uh, go ahead and travel back in time and give him that off switch for gravity, that he'd probably pay for it.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, we find out that gravity works the hard way sometimes. <laughs> yeah, he's oh, not and, weightless yet. <laughs> and uh, and by the way, this is from our conspiracy theory, anonymous said department, but on a blog that discussed his... Uh, you know, a couple of sentences really is all it was on the on his accident and, and injury and possibilities. But somebody commented on the blog, and they said, Newsflash, Obama and Bolden caught tampering with astronauts' bike to derail human spaceflight, parentheses, again. Again, that's from Anonymous. That's not from Mark <laughs> Raddett. But, uh, you know, I bet there's some good humor going around from from people that can take a moment to laugh instead of cry.
2: There is. In fact, I was just reading an ABC News article today uh, about it, and in the very bottom they were saying that, you know, he's a very family-oriented and fun kind of guy because uh, during the TCDT, the Terminal Countdown Test, which is like the dress rehearsal of the launch, while there, um, Nicole Stott brought her um, child with her, and uh, Tim Copra Pointed out a finger and you know he said you know what this is, Tickle Monster. <laughs> <laughs> and so ABC News said they hope that Tim Copra and the Tickle Monster will be able to make it aboard STS-133, and I found that funny.
4: I'll second that. I, I really hope that the situation isn't as as uh, as dire as as some individuals are pointing it out. I'm I'm hoping that it, it it's it's much ado over nothing. And that uh, that Tim Koper is all set and ready to go for STS-133 as we're as we're recording this.
2: Whatever it is, speedy recovery. Amen. Alrighty then. So with that, should we continue with some other rocket and spaceflight news or?
4: This kind of sort of leads into another another problem. Um, there was an announcement uh, uh, this week uh, concerning STS-134. Uh, Rick Sturkow who's uh, a veteran shuttle commander, was named um, as, a, as the backup commander for STS-134. Now, this was only to facilitate continue, uh, continuing the training uh, for the, uh, uh, the crew of STS-134 while uh, Mark Kelly is taking care of uh, uh, a rather unfortunate uh, situation that occurred, as everybody knows, uh, that occurred last, w- last week. Um, Mark Kelly, as, as everyone knows by now, is, is, is married to uh, Gabrielle Giffords, and we all know what happened, uh, happened last week. Um, now, NASA uh, underlined that this is not a permanent change. Mark Kelly is still considered to be the commander of the flight, um, but again, they wanted to make sure that the crew can continue training while, while, the, while Mark is taking care of his family. Uh, whether or whether or not the uh, the change is permanent, that is going to be up to Mark Kelly himself to see uh, how he wants to do that. I think uh, he and Peggy Whitson are going to have a little chat uh, in the not too distant future about about that very very topic but um, again i'm it 's not my place to speculate as far as what 's go- going to going to happen with that right now as 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 of right now mark Kelly is 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 still the commander of s d s one thirty four and the change again. I'll stress this was to make sure the crew could continue its, its training
3: regimen. I think time is going is going to tell, and I, I probably am repeating myself from last week, but um, it's, it's classy of NASA not to, uh, not to push this and to take advantage of the flexibility they have with a, uh, appointing a backup commander.
4: Yeah, I I agree, and uh, you know again my our, our hearts uh, are are with uh, with Mark Kelly right now. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, again too, the, you know I'm going to just rewind a little bit back to the press conference. There was somebody, you know, uh, uh, that asked a uh, an STS-134 related question during that, even after. Um, They said, you know, we're not going to entertain questions about STS-134 in deference to the family. And uh, uh, somebody had to go ahead and do it. And and, uh, much to John Shannon's credit, he just said, well, we're not going to discuss that right now. And just politely kind of blew him off, which, uh, again, hats off to him for doing that.
2: Now I think while we're talking about naming people, we should maybe talk a little bit about naming spacecrafts, which is what Russia plans to do. They plan to name the next Soyuz that they'll be sending to the International Space Station after their first cosmonaut in space, Yuri Gagarin, who launched 50 years ago this year.
4: Yeah, I thought that was classy. You know, and again, it's it's sort of celebrating. Uh, uh, Celebrating the fact that uh, you know 50 years ago this year uh, we've we took our first steps in, into uh, in, in the, into the cosmos and I think it's kind of neat that uh, that they're giving a tip of the hat to uh, to that.
2: And if I'm correct, that's actually a manned mission, right? That'll be.
4: Yeah, that's that's to the ISS. Uh, that is for uh, Soyuz uh, TMA-21. Um, and. Uh, uh, I believe this is this is a, again a shuttle mission to the uh, uh, to the ISS. It, you know, it's a, 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 a you know a taxi ride up to the ISS. So uh, um, it is a bonafide you know flight up to uh, it is a bonafide mission.
2: It's interesting when you actually take a look at the patch itself
1: mm-hmm.
2: for the mission. Besides the fact that it has Yuri Gagarin's picture on it, it the actual shape of the patch. Uh-huh. is the shape of his Vostok 1 capsule.
4: Oh, that's cool. I haven't seen the patch. I'm going to have to go ahead and, and pull that up. That's neat.
2: So, speaking of former vehicles, do we dare go into the current status of the heavy lift vehicle?
4: Oh boy, I almost... you know, Or, or the project that was formerly known as Constellation?
2: <laughs> Any of the above. Do, do we, we dare, dare even dare, enter dare that I, realm?
4: Dare I even say it? Um, yeah, uh, uh, some a little bit of news happened uh, with reference to that this week. Uh, as as some folks may know, uh, NASA has been given about I think 11 billion dollars uh, to go ahead and put together a new heavy lift vehicle to go ahead and replace the shuttle and hopefully put um, uh, either the Orion capsule on top of it. Uh, NASA basically said today that, or during the during this hearing, um, that guys, we can't do it for um, for the price tag that you folks are are giving us, and we can't do it properly with, with the money that you that Congress is basically giving us. And uh, certain members of Congress, uh, or certain senators, that includes. Um, According to uh, an article I'm looking at here from uh, nasaspaceflight.com, um, Senators uh, Jay Rockefeller, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, uh, David Vitter, um, and uh, uh, our good friend uh, Senator Bill Nelson basically said, uh, uh, no, you're going to do it. And we, can, we believe that it can be done affordably and efficient, efficiently, and this is the money you're getting, and this must be a priority. So, uh, you know, you got one NASA saying, uh, guys, you're you're kind of underfunding us here, and Congress saying, no, this is what you're going to get. This is how, how you, you know, we don't care how you do it, but by 2016, according to law, you have to have a heavy lift vehicle ready to go. Wow. <sighs> this kind of also kind of sort of uh, begs the question then um does can the commercial folks do this quicker and cheaper anybody want to tackle that one
2: uh no but yes okay uh it's i I don't know i mean they may be able to do it a little bit quicker and a little bit faster but again you risk running a uh, safety compromise when you try and speed things up and cut your budgets. So private may be able to but at the same time I doubt it based off of number one, safety and number two, the fact that NASA has done it before they've built these rockets these commercial enterprises are doing it for the first time and they're basically experimenting and going as you know, as things go along True, the Falcon 9 did successfully launch, but how many tries did that take? And that still took many years to develop. So I don't think it's going to be much faster if you go with commercial. But there's always that chance.
4: Yeah, there is. Um, but you have to, you know, to just be devil's advocate here a little bit. I'm, I'm first before I even continue. I'm kind of in your in your court there, Sawyer. But just to play devil's advocate here a little bit. Um, uh, true you're talking about SpaceX but you're also talking about other companies like you know, Lockheed Martin and Boeing who have already designed uh, rockets before uh, they're also in the fray here um, so do we tell you know, Boeing or, or Lockheed Martin hey we've got this particular vehicle with these particular requirements this is the money we're going to get can you do it within budget and uh you know, it, the, that's essentially what we're even doing with the with the heavy lift vehicle. Um, there's a all there's going to be a prime contractor named eventually that will design this thing and and uh, and put it together. So, uh, you know, again, um, just playing devil's advocate here.
3: Uh, it comes to mind uh, from the press conference where Elon Musk made a statement following their uh, their last successful launch of the Falcon 9 where he said when you I can't remember exactly but I think I'll get it across he said when you use legacy systems you inherit legacy costs so how is this this whole politically mandated rocket going to be any less expensive than where it has its roots.
4: Yeah, Mark. You see that? That's what I'm kind of worried about. You know, even the shuttle itself was was sort of up against those kind of kind of uh, conditions early on. Uh, so you know, and the vehicle we got wasn't exactly the vehicle we wanted anyway. Um, what we what we were looking for was a vehicle that you know may have been you know kind of expensive to, to put together but very very cheap to operate instead we got the exact opposite <laughs> a vehicle that was you know inexpensive to build by you know mission standards but expensive as anything to operate so you know so are we setting ourselves up again for the same problem with this Hlv well
2: it's What you were talking about before is kind of just when you get a mix of too many minds thinking about one thing, and each one thing gets added on, and then they have to cut its original purpose. In this case, when you're talking about private, it might even be worse. I mean, the government, you have to go to strict governmental standards. When it comes to private, they could put on whatever they want, whoever gives them the most money. So right there, you can get a vehicle that you wouldn't want just based on funds even. so.
4: Yeah, but you also, if like for instance, if, if you're building it to, to custom, you know, to a, a certain set of standard, it's it's the government that's giving you that standard, no?
2: Yeah, that's why it's better, in my opinion, when it, if a government were to build it, because then everything is regulated and standardized. True, there might be things that you'd have to cut that you wouldn't want on it, but the difference is scientists and engineers, along with a little bit of governmental help building it, Versus people that have a passion for it, engineers, and people that are paying money.
4: Yeah, I can, I, I can, I can understand that. But the, the one thing that I think is missing overall is uh, <laughs> we still don't have an articulated purpose for this particular vehicle. All, we've, all all, all the, the, the Congress has said, you will build this heavy lift vehicle, and you will do it by 2016. But no purpose has been articulated for it.
1: I know what uh, it will do. You
2: know, all right, lift go. heavy things.
4: Okay, but to <laughs> what end?
2: <laughs> I don't know <laughs> that as I'm much saying? as I can tell you. Yeah,
4: exactly. See what I'm saying? To what end? And we don't know that yet. There's been been no real, honest to God purpose articulated for this HLV. Whether we're going back to the moon, whether we're going to Mars, whether we're going to an asteroid. What is it? You know, it's again. I think we're we're going to be making the same mistakes over again where, where we don't articulate a purpose for the program, and and we're 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 going to be. You know, making a whole world a world of trouble if we don't go ahead and finally say, give NASA a firm direction and say, NASA, this is this, these are your marching orders. It's not just to build a rocket to go ahead and go somewhere. Um, we've got to go ahead and we are going to Mars or we're going to the moon, back to the moon and. This is the the rocket that's going to do it, or this is the the and these are the vehicles that
2: are going to do it.
4: Articulate a purpose for these things first, and then go off and build it. Not just build the things and then find a purpose for them.
2: But that will it the, have to be man rated?
4: Yeah, <laughs> I mean the, the Orion is going to be sitting sitting on top of it,
2: supposedly. Supposedly is the key word there, because when I think heavy lift vehicle, I think unmanned. So. That's you well, know your first thought at least when you hear a heavy lift vehicle. Otherwise, you'd hear a rocket or something that has to do with, you know, people on board it.
4: Well, that's 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 the whole purpose of, of, of the HLV. Eventually, the Orion is going to be sitting on top of this thing, um, and uh, uh, or, or some other spacecraft is going to be sitting on top of it. So, uh, and it has to be man-rated. That's the whole purpose of, of, of this thing. But again, to what end? I mean, uh, the, the the shuttle program was was a program without a without a clear cut purpose for a long time, until finally the, the station was articulated and, and it's it's you know it, it, it finally toward the end of its life um, had a had a goal which was to go ahead and complete the international space station, which by the way it was initially designed to do on the outset. That was the whole purpose of the shuttle, to go ahead and service a space, to build and service a space station. So, again, we, we were building this vehicle without a purpose, and I'm going to stick to my guns here. Uh, we have to articulate a clear-cut purpose for this vehicle, or else we're going to be making the same mistakes all, over and over again.
2: By the way, just a funny fact. Over the weekend, I was purging through my closet, and I found a big book of question and answers, And, you know, I thought, what the heck, it's an older book. I'd look through it, see what space stuff they have in it. Sure enough, one of the questions was, when when will the International Space Station be finished? (laughs) And it said, if all goes according to plan, the space station will be built by 2005. The first piece having gone up in November of 98. Here we are, 2011, still working on it.
4: Well, we <laughs> we we're, we're, we're nearing the end phase of it which which is you know so uh, nearing but six, I just
2: found that entertaining.
4: Yeah, we're about about 6 6 uh you know we're about uh, a year off, you know 6 years off. Um but we all know too what happened in the interim with that um the Columbia Yeah, all did not accident. go according
2: to plan with Columbia.
4: <laughs> right, the Columbia accident happened in the interim so that kind of kind of slowed things up. Um uh, you know within all of that. so uh, I have a feeling had we had had that event that that sorry event had not not happened or that that sad event not occurred, uh, we would have been uh, uh, well within uh, within the, the 2005 time frame.
2: And then we'd have no purpose for the shuttle again. <laughs> but whatever it is, it's 2011 station's almost built. I just found that funny. Oh, we'd
4: have a purpose for the shuttle. It would be to continue to service the station, to deliver racks and and things like and and supplies and, and you know pay, take back you know spares and
2: and help some. prepare for a heavy lift vehicle to be built.
4: <laughs> yeah, all well, that too. I mean, you know, we we you know, and I think again to to just just go over to an earlier story, um, the the, the stringer problem. Uh, uh, occurred on 133 uh, with with tank 137. There's a possibility that this type of technology may be used in the um, HLV designs. So uh, you know, again, you know, we're we're kind of as as Mark alluded to, we're kind of building on 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 older tech technology, and and who knows, it might be incorporated into the into the HLV. So these problems that uh, uh, occurred on on uh, 133 might you know. It might be a learning experience for the HLV.
2: All right. Let's take our own heavy lift vehicle and let's blast away from this subject. (laughs) All right. So as we move away from that topic, we uh, head on out to, I believe it's New Mexico. And uh, Mark has a little bit more information on that, right?
3: Sure do. Uh, Thanks to parabolicarc.com. I ran across a story that uh, the governor of New Mexico, Governor Martinez, who has just taken office, has sacked the entire board of the Spaceport America Authority. Wow. And, uh, this is the uh, proposed $209 million desert spaceport outside of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. And uh, it started with the... Uh, the the director of the board being asked for his resignation or to be fired. And uh, and then it ended up with the uh, remaining members of the board being told that uh, they were out. Uh, Kindly enough, they were told they could reapply for their jobs. And this is the uh, harsh realities of... uh, of government funding about half of the money is going to come from the state of New Mexico and they want to make sure that the the bill that the taxpayers are footing is being well spent and you know as you might imagine there's reports investigative report by the Albuquerque Journal that says there have been construction delays poor planning and weak managerial oversight and uh, one of the things that I've that I've read here is that there was no single general contractor you know, running the project that it had been separated into fourteen different bid packages, and um I can imagine that unless things are really tightly uh integrated, you end up with a lot of wasted time i'm sure wasted money, and you end up with things that go just like we said a second ago behind schedule um, they just want to get the uh the best that uh they can. And also, (laughs) the uh, executive director who resigned uh, earlier this month in January 2011, they explained his departure resulting from a potential conflict of interest in his purchase of a ranch adjacent to Spaceport America. Now, I'm, I'm putting things together, not necessarily coming up with the facts, but when you talk about adjacent property to essentially what is a, a, you know, a long runway type facility. And then I read that uh, there's a possibility that they might need additional spending to cover what the spaceport lacks, which is a runway for crosswind landings. And again, that strikes me as important for an unpowered ship, Spaceship Two that they're discussing Uh, landing without power, if they did have a crosswind develop between launch and landing, and sometimes the weather throws curves at you, you don't necessarily know exactly what the weather's going to do, that a uh, crosswind runway could be a lifesaver, literally. And apparently that's lacking. Again, this is a lot of conjecture and theory, but uh, interesting story. It points out how complex a uh, commercial spaceport would be. And is
4: Mark real quick? Do you think that that maybe uh, you had you were saying that that the contract was sort of separated into like fourteen you know little subcontracts here and not having a lead contractor with this? It, was it just simply a case of too many cooks spoiling the soup, or or, or
3: what? Well, actually, the fact that the Spaceport Authority is the uh, is the ones that are overseeing all of the subcontractors. And so they've got a big job to do, and I don't know how they're organized. But depending on what the expertise is of the Spaceport Authority, are they up to speed in in handling million-dollar uh, contracts, multi-million-dollar contracts, um, things that may well go outside their their experience and their 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 previous. Um, things they've been around in the business world and the government world and so it's you know they weren't unsupervised the, the 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 bidders that that were working were were under the supervision of the spaceport authority and and I guess that's the problem that they didn't have a top level contractor, which i think is probably a good idea it may add to the expense of it but uh, that's that's the that's the contention here.
4: I still can't believe the glaring error uh, that they made with the crosswind runway. I mean, you know, gee whiz! I and mean, couldn't you? That that's the shuttle has has issues with, with crosswinds too. And if, if they do have a crosswind, they land you know on the opposite end of the runway, um, or or they they just you know wave off and and go somewhere else. Uh, that's how uh, how how. How important these things are. I mean, it's just
3: amazing that they didn't bake that in bake that into this. Well, it may not be important. They mentioned in, in this article from Parabolic Arc that uh, Spaceship Two is undergoing glide tests in Mojave, and its flight in en- flight envelope is still not fully known. So, uh, it may not be a factor. It may be such that they could uh, switch directions, opposite direction landings, things like that. Uh, but one thing they don't have is what NASA has, where we wave off to Edwards and you know land land there with with some flexibility that they don't have at Kennedy. So
4: oh, still, I'm wondering too. Uh, I'm trying to draw the analogy between building a new airport and building a spaceport. You know, to me, you know, you still have land. You have takeoff and landings. I mean, you know, wouldn't you want to have people that are kind of I'd love to know the dossiers of some of these folks to find out if they had any experience in aviation or or, or, or spaceflight at all. Um, all of these board members to find out you know, if, if they were actually supervising the project properly. And maybe that's why they're all out on their on their keister right now.
3: <laughs> well, and of course, some of that is politics. New governor, they certainly have the uh, the historical tendency to. To bring in the people that they want in their administration, and since this is a an operation that answers to the state, um, they can reapply those. So, always not lost. well, I guess we'll stay tuned. Things are
4: still still going on, so we'll have to see what. Uh, um, uh, what New Mexico decides to do with, with this project. is it, It's really important that they get this right.
2: Definitely. One thing, by the way, Mark, that you were mentioning was about, you know, the crosswinds and, you know, the possibility of unpredictable weather. Well, haven't scientists actually used weather to discover something, uh, a pretty rare phenomenon that we weren't exactly sure a lot about, but they've discovered in pure weather?
3: Yeah. Speaking of weather, and again, here this is such a um, outside of my outside of my knowledge. It's uh, one of those things where I'm looking around in different directions and I'm finding interesting things. But NASA's Fermi gamma ray space telescope has detected beams of antimatter produced above thunderstorms on Earth, and they refer to them as uh, TGFs, terrestrial gamma-ray flashes. And there's a really slick video that uh, I wish I could explain even a fraction of this, but the video does a marvelous job of giving you that visual imagery of what's happening and how they can see gamma-ray bursts from Earth. And the, the Fermi telescope has captured several
2: of these. I
3: think it's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, who'd have thought that you could go outside to see a storm and you're seeing antimatter being formed.
3: <laughs> yeah, and here's a space telescope that's designed to monitor gamma rays to look out in the universe and to, to see these high energy, uh, this high energy energy and they're by chance catching several of them from Earth and they show a little map that has uh, locations that they've identified, 130 uh, of these TGFs since launch and in 2008, but uh, they estimate that there's 500 of these TGFs every day, and most go undetected.
4: Wow. Do, do, do they allude to how possibly these things are created? Is, I mean, this this is this is mind-boggling that actually antimatter is being created you know, off of these things. This this is incredible.
3: I am looking at NASA's um, briefing on this. I guess in several cases the spacecraft was immediately above a thunderstorm, and in several cases they were actually across the horizon. And lightning detectors are uh, all around the world, and, and a lightning detector network uh, determined the only lightning at the time was in a certain location that was beyond Fermi's uh, direct view over the horizon. And uh, in fact, one was Fermi was over Egypt, and the storm was over Zambia, 2,800 miles south. And uh, man, I wish I could explain this or comprehend it, but uh, I'm a good one for videos and pictures, and uh, that's what that's what told the story for me.
2: And that's what show notes are for.
3: You betcha.
2: Yeah, I, I'm going to have
4: to take a look at that, Marcus. Again, I, I have to apologize. I did not. I did not look at that. Although I, I, I was trying to pull up while you were talking a, a uh, an article um, that I remember uh, on space.com, sort of talking about this and i'm getting it saying the site's temporarily down for maintenance so i guess space.com isn't feeling well so I'll, I'll have to i'll have to check out the nasa site and see what, and, and take a look at that video that you're alluding to
3: oh and and just as a side note i've mentioned this before but um one of the subscriptions on itunes that i look forward to the most is a uh, is a nasa uh video that comes out every few weeks or so i guess It's called the NASA Goddard Shorts HD, and they give you a full, I don't know if it's 1020 or 1080 or, you know, what size HD video you're getting. But you're getting stereo sound, and it's usually a couple minutes long, and uh, it's just just something that, you know, when I see it pop up as a new show, it's like, oh, I need to save a couple of minutes. I want to see this. And not be trying to do ten other things on the computer.
2: Can I suggest one other show to do that with? Okay. How about Talking Space, which is on iTunes? I thought
3: you were going to say that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, one funny thing that I noticed as well with this story is that the person who took the lead on this story is the one who lives in the thunderstorm state, basically. Yeah, where's my terrestrial gamma ray flash? (laughs) Well the rest of the United States except for your state has terrestrial snow flashes. So enjoy yeah. the gamma rays. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty then, so uh speaking of lightning bolts and uh weather and things like that, Mars and that had absolutely no transition in it whatsoever. <laughs> So, Gene, take it away because I am just lost. On yeah, my way. Is... I'm lost on my one way journey here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is a story that, that
4: just doesn't want to go away. We, we explored this on our very, very first podcast uh, back in uh, uh, September of 2009, and it was the infamous one way trip to Mars type thing. Well, there was a. An article that was uh, posted on, uh, on Fox News um, basically asking uh, what made 400 people volunteer for a one-way trip to Mars and it uh, it quotes the uh, Journal of cosmology a report uh, um, reporting that uh, uh, 400 volunteers have said that they would gladly go on a one-way trip to Mars. They say that a uh, you know the interplanetary trip could take up to about 10 months, but uh, would you know returning would not be a be an option. And I read the art, the article here, and, and it went into uh, a few things, you know, psychological problems that that they're gonna uh, that, that a crew might that uh, the settlers on Mars would encounter. But it, it quotes. Um, a gentleman here by the name of Peter Graves, or Greaves, I'm sorry. Uh, quote: I've had a deep desire to explore the universe ever since I was a child and understood what what a rocket was. He's a mechanic. He's a he's a motorcycle mechanic, or excuse me. Um, he, he he calls himself a jack of all trades who started his own motorcycle dispatch company and f- fixes computers and and uh, motorcycle engines on the side. And he's one of these individuals that, that volunteered, that said he would gladly volunteer for a, a one-way ticket to the Red Planet. And I, fired, I after reading this article, I, I, I posted it on Twitter um, saying, you know, gee, I'd really like to meet and talk to some of these people at, at great length. And uh, two individuals uh, who I'm not going to mention just yet because we're trying to get uh, clearance on one of them, uh, said, yeah, they would gladly go ahead and 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 do it. One individual explained that the, it might be the only shot he has at the red planet. Um, period, and his only shot to go ahead and explore and, and and be a pioneer. And I guess it's 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 these romantic notions of pioneering and pioneering spirit that uh, that carry people through. But again, I would really like to get into the psyche and and what is. You know, what, what's behind the, the logic of, of going on a one-way trip, not coming back? We had a little mini debate on Twitter, and, and my feeling was, okay, fine. If you're going to be part of, like, say, a 400 group team that's trying to start and set up shop and set up a colony there, okay, maybe I can understand it. As long as you've got, you know, all of your stuff kind of sort of waiting for you, your your, your fuel, uh, you know, your, your fuel depot there, your your shelter is, is just about set up there, you've already got some other things already sort of waiting for you there uh, to go ahead and set up shop. Okay, I can understand that, but, excuse me, just just one person or, or a couple of people uh, thrown out there with just, you know, minimal supplies and, and just sort of, you know, scurrying around the surface, you know, exploring and, and you know, essentially being human versions of spirit and opportunity. Um... I, I don't know. I, I just don't get that, and and so we're going to have a little bit of a debate here on a future show, with uh, with two of these two individuals that said they would they would also love to be part of the this this 400 group, and to to really understand what the what the psyche and what the what the motivation is on that. So it, it, again, it'll be fun to explore, and I I'm, we're working on that uh, for a future show, and I can't wait.
2: So in preparation for that show, we actually want to hear from you. Would you take a one-way trip to Mars? Would you be one of the 400 people that said yes? Or would you say, no, I'm only going if I'm coming back? We want to hear from you. You can always email us at mailbag at talkingspaceonline.com or you can go onto our Contact Us page at our website, talkingspaceonline.com. You can also send us a message on Twitter as at TalkingSpace. or you can also drop us a line on Facebook. Just search for Talking Space. And with that, I believe that we could take this show one way, and that one way being towards its end. So I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. That includes Gene McCulka. Thank you, Gene.
4: Thanks, Sawyer. You're loaded with some great segues tonight. I appreciate it. That was really good.
2: <laughs> At least I had a segue for that
3: one. Yeah, that was beautiful.
2: <laughs> thank you as well, Mark Ratterman.
3: Good show, Sawyer. Thanks for everything
2: not a problem and thank you the listener for once again joining us downloading us listening to us however you intend to get us into your earbuds that sounded quite awkward so on that note have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are